This episode of Cheat Codes, a Sickle Cell podcast, is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. This episode of Cheat Codes was supported by Adacvio. What's up, Cheat Codes listeners? It's me, Dr. Z. And me, Dr. C. Dr. C, this episode that, uh, once again, we weren't able to actually do the interview, but get a chance to actually look forward to listening to an interview fresh as a guest that I'm just, I'm thrilled about. And I'm going to tell you why. I think you know why, Dr. C. It's because... You know, the guest on this episode is more than just a sickle cell colleague. Yeah, he's a friend. For sure. And a great guy who's really done so much in sickle cell research in, in a relatively short time. You know, he does a lot of stuff with technology, but has a great example of what you can do with a transition program. And, and uh, you know, so happy to have him on. And, I'm you know, I'm excited to hear what he has to say about transition because it's, it's such a big problem. We, you know, we've had so many challenges around um, transition. I know in, in Detroit, as the director of the sickle cell program, for a while we stopped transitioning patients because people would fall through the cracks and have bad outcomes. And we, we really just couldn't let that happen. And we tried, you know, multiple iterations of how to transition best. And I, I think it's, it's just a, a hard thing for everybody to move from childhood to adulthood and take over their own care. And especially if you have a chronic disease like sickle cell. And so, you know, we need people figuring out the best practices for that, figure out the best way to really get people prepared to be their own caretaker. So we've got Dr. Nermish Shah, the director of the transition program at Duke University, who will be joining Patrick James Lynch as they talk through Dr. Shaw's career, his transition program, and some other things. I'm looking forward to this interview. I hope you guys enjoy it too. All right, joining me now for today's interview from Duke University's School of Medicine, Dr. Nirmish Shah. Good afternoon to you, doctor. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for uh, having me here today. Appreciate you being here. Thank you for coming on to Cheat Codes. And, and let's dive right into it. I understand that there are a few main areas of research that you focus on, including the transition from pediatric to adult care for sickle cell disease. Can you provide me with an overview? Historically speaking, why is this transitioning topic an important one? And, and what are the major challenges in helping a patient successfully transition from pediatric to adult care in sickle cell disease? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question, and, and I really do appreciate you taking the time to focus on transition. Uh, this has really been something that I've been working on uh, for, for quite a while. You know, I think that the, the issue comes up with any chronic disease, you know, that, that a patient that's born with a, a situation where their life is going to go through a journey where there's going to be ups and downs and, and a lot of different complications that might come about. And so in sickle cell disease, when you have a disease that just is progressive, you have unpredictable complications such as pain, you, you want to prepare that patient and family uh, as, as they move through life. And one of those big moves is moving from pediatrics to adult care. And really, I think the big thing that I often try to get patients and families to understand is that it's a process. It, it, it takes time. And so it's not like we can just you know, label a patient as saying, well, you're 18. And so now you're going to move on to the adult world and, and magically something changes when they become 18. It really is, is a long process. And, and, and so because of that, there, there are a lot of nuances and a lot of things that, that we have to consider as patients become an adult. 
What has your research into transitioning from pediatric to adult care taught you about how we can improve the process for patients and caregivers? Yeah, I think we're, we're, we're learning more and more. And, and one of them uh, to consider in the research is that it really, it, and I know this is, this is often just said for, for a lot of different things, but it takes a village. It really takes a lot of people to try and surround a patient and their family and their caregivers with the resources, knowledge, education, and the logistics to get them, quote unquote, successfully from pediatrics to adults. And so I'll give a couple examples. The, the first is, when I say it takes a village, the more people you can have uh, that are seen in both pediatrics and adults, uh, there is some evidence that that, that leads to, to more success. And so I, you know, I, I mm. leaned on a little bit of that evidence coming out of St. Jude's, but, but, you know, I, I'm one common face and that's great that, you know, that I, I, I take care of patients on the pediatric side. I take care of patients on the adult side. So I, I'm actually really lucky that I can literally walk my patient to the adult clinic. Uh, but that, but that doesn't happen in many areas. But even though I'm a familiar face, I know that patients want a lot of comfort and, and trust uh, that, that really is built over years. And so to do that, we now introduce the adult teams early in the pediatric process of transition. We, we try to have the pediatric teams continue to, to make contact when, when, once they become an adult. So, so there's this kind of connection between the two sides, which I think is pretty critical in trying to surround the patient with some familiarity, which then again leads to trust. And, and the only other, I guess the other example I would give of some of the, of the research that we were looking into is the, the more connection you have, the better you do. When I say connection, you know, we, we're, we're part of one study uh, that's ongoing and, 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 and led by, by, by Dr. Asunko over in Charlotte, but, you know, do, does peer mentoring, does, does someone else, you know, reaching out and touching a patient help? And I think that there's, again, there's a lot of models in other diseases that show that this is uh, potentially very helpful. And, and I think sickle cell is, again, another group of patients that we really need to give extra attention to. And that's where peer mentoring, having a, a sickle cell educator that engages with the patient, not just on a medical side, but also on a social side, you know, all those things uh, I, I think are very helpful. Well, that kind of dovetails nicely into the next question that I have, which is kind of focusing on the patients and the caregivers, is there anything that they can be doing differently or thinking about differently to have the greatest chance at successfully transitioning care? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 I, and I hope we get into this at some point too, but I'd love to try and define what success is, right? So that successful <laughs> sure. getting into, into adulthood is a, is a relative term. It can vary, but, but I'll start by, by um, you know, answering uh, by, by saying that one thing that needs to be done is to Again, remember it's a process. It's not that we're, you know, I think sometimes the word transition and transfer get kind of mis mislabeled. You know, I have a lot of uh, uh, residents or fellows or, or, or even students or nurses that say, oh, this patient is, you know, it's already transitioned, but really they've transferred. Transfer is the handing of the baton off from pediatrics to adult. But transition is this whole, you know, starting whole process starting at age 12 to 13. They're usually mm. the guidelines say start as early as 12 to 13 years of age. And the patients and caregivers and families need to focus on the fact that we need to get this patient and, and of course, everyone around them ready to be as independent and uh, successful in caring for themselves when they become an adult. And part of that is, and again, this is me wearing both hats, pediatric and adult, 
On the pediatric side, we often say, and, and this is not a knock to the adult side, but on the pediatric side, there's a lot of love. There's a lot of hand-holding that, you know, if you miss an appointment, we're, we're on you to say, why are you missing this appointment? On the adult side, you're an adult. And, and many times, you know, we, we try to give that extra uh, call to say, why, you know, why did you not come? Uh, but, but many times with, with what I've seen in, in other hospital systems, that there's just not as many resources on the adult side, and we regard the patient as an adult. And again, with uh, cognitive issues, with issues with patients not really being uh, as well prepared as we'd hope them to be, that can be an issue. And so I think patients and families and caregivers should all try and focus on how can I get this patient to be as independent and knowledgeable and educated about their disease. And so that's a lot of what I do uh, on the pediatric side. What then defines success? Is it the ability to have all of those tools in your toolbox during this transitional period? To your point of emphasis, this is not like a, you know, it's morning time and by afternoon. This is a multi-year, many-person process. What does define success? Yeah, no, and, and this is this is actually a moving target and in a good way. It used to be that success, and I, you know, there were actually papers out there that said that success was uh, graded as just making it to their first appointment on the adult side. Uh, then, then we had modification of that success as, okay, we'll make it to the first appointment and being in the adult clinic for at least two years. And then we modified it and said, okay, well, not only they get to the adult clinic, and they're there for two years, but they also uh, understand their disease. And there's a transition readiness assessment questionnaire that's now been developed by the American Society of Hematology. There's a track questionnaire. So I think more and more we're pushing to say we should not just settle for, yeah, you have an adult provider listed. So we, we're going to call that good. We're, we're going to say we, we really are going to set a high bar and expectation. And that then trickles down to say, well, if this is the expectation for quote unquote, success on the adult side, I have to get that patient ready to be able to be, you know, classified as success on the adult side. And the way to do that is to start early, to provide all these resources and education, et cetera. So I, I do think it's a moving target and I, and I think it's definitely in a good way. In, in your opinion and experience and based on your research, do, do sickle cell disease patients face challenges in transition that are unique to sickle cell disease and not experienced by patients managing either other rare or chronic diseases? And, and if so, what are those unique challenges? Yeah, I, I absolutely think that the, the sickle cell population uh, it has a hurdle that many other chronic diseases don't have. And, and I know this uh, for, from, from experience and, and talking to colleagues that are in other chronic diseases. And we've worked as a group at, at Duke to, to have a lot of collaboration between transition efforts uh, in, in other um, uh, diseases, such as congestive, uh, you know, the heart disease, uh, congestive heart failure and uh, heart disease and transplant uh, in, in GI-related, rheumatologic-related transition. And what we see, and it seems to be unique uh, to a certain extent, is there's not enough adult hematologists. There's just not enough emphasis on the adult side. And so I think that we have all this discussion about how you know, we want patients to be successfully transitioned and transferred to the adult side. But if you don't have someone to catch them, you're in this unique situation where you've done all this work to get them to be as successful as possible, and then you don't have someone to hand that baton off to. And so that is something that we're working on. And, and I think that uh, in, in that mindset, 
we're trying to get um, a lot more interest by primary care providers, by hematologists, oncologists that usually do more oncology. We're trying to get uh, centers to try and focus money and resources for those hematologists that are that are uh, there are few and few between you know aren't too many around the country, but but are overworked to a certain extent because they have so many patients they need to care for, but they just don't have the resources. Uh, so I think it's an evolution. I do think that that's been improved a little bit over over the last five to ten years, but I do think for sure that that is a unique aspect that that we as as sickle cell providers within hematology have that that other chronic diseases, I, I, from what I've seen, don't have. Thinking about the existing hematologists and sickle cell disease specialists and experts that do exist. Can you share a little bit with our audience what kind of network exists amongst providers? There's two things that kind of come to mind for me, both that transition from pediatric care to adult care and how much on the provider side is there conversation and and the ability to um, refer back to a previous provider. And then also for an adult who, say, gets a job in a different state, has to move states, needs to find a new center. What kind of communication is happening on the back end between care providers? So I'll start with the, the first aspect is, is the communication between the pediatric group and the adult. And, and realistically, it doesn't happen enough. <laughs> and and I, I really uh, think the emphasis should be uh, that it should happen more. We need to have a, a good strategy to try and help that. It is, of course, uh, the expectation to try and have the pediatric folks collaborate with the adult group and have these conversations uh, and, and to the point that, the Amer- again, the American Society of Hematology uh, put, put together a consensus and, and put together forms of, that should help that process happen. So, I mean, the, the understanding is, yes, it should happen. Does it happen consistently and does it happen to the extent it should? It, it really doesn't. And I think it goes back to, to the previous point. There's just not enough hematologists uh, to, to say in every area, in every major uh, area, do I have a go-to adult person? And if I do have a go-to adult person, what I've seen over the years is that, unfortunately, that that they cycle through. <laughs> they, they may move, they may have a different person come in, and then you have to start that journey again. Uh, I, again, I'm optimistic that the second question you have is going to help this, and that is that sickle cell providers are a tight-knit community. And, and we all seem to know each other, and that's a great thing. So it's kind of like a family, and so if a patient is moving from North Carolina to New York, I know who to call. I, I know exactly who they need to be reaching out to. And if I don't know exactly, so for example, let's, and this just happened recently, I had a patient moving. I knew the pediatric group there wonderfully. I wasn't sure about the adult providers because there usually are not as many adult providers to kind of lean on and be in this family. So, so I asked the pediatric person, I said, you know, like, who would you lean on? Who would you, who would you send my, my now adult patient to? And they helped me find a provider. So I think that's where the connections are really key. I'd love for the connections to become even more formal. Not, I'm not, of course, advocating us all being on a, on a, on a chat group on WhatsApp or something, but, you know, I would say that, that I think uh, there are, there are forums uh, that we have used uh, historically, uh, that we post things and say, if anyone knows of a provider in this area, can you please let me know? And someone always chimes in. So I, I think in that way, that that definitely has been helpful. 
I want to ask you about transition wins, if there are any transition wins you can point to. So has there been either an idea that was implemented and made a difference at the clinic or perhaps an anecdote or personal story of how a successful transition of care made all the difference to some particular patient or their greater family? Anything come to mind as a big transition win that you could share? Yeah, so I'll start, I'll start with kind of a general, um, general thought here, and, and that is that I think a part of the win uh, for us, at, at least at, at Duke, and, and, and this is something that I push push on to other sites as well, other hospital systems, is to come up with a system, try to standardize, uh, try and standardize the process of moving from pediatrics to adults. So that that that's as simple as saying, do I have a policy? And, and of course, I'm not necessarily a policy guy where I have to write things down and, and have things put in the books. But but I think it helps make things less subjective, and 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 this is this goes to technically why why I really really champion this is because I've seen that uh, the transition and move from pediatrics to adults can be subjective, but but the the policy and the standardization to say okay every patient is going to have this kind of education uh, for for our center something that I came up with. Um, in, in, a, in an effort to make things simple for myself is the education I give, I, I put into what's called the who, what, where, and why. At, at age 13, 14, they need to know who they are with the disease. Uh, they need to know, you know what type of sickle cell they have, what is their, you know, what are the stressors on sickle cell dehydration, infections, et cetera. And they need to know their medications they're on. You know, so they need to know who they are, just the basics. When they become 15, 16, they're starting high school. Now they need to know what to do in different situations. What's a fever? What phone number would they call if they had issues? Uh, what's their pain action plan? You know, what medications do they take down to the dosage? So, you know, all the, all the what, you know, and, and the complications is pretty extensive. But again, I, I built these modules to kind of standardize what discussion happens in our clinics, not just by me, but by my learners, by my nurses. And finally, the last module is the where and why. So where are they going to go in life? Where are they going to be working? Where are they going to go to school? Where are they going to get insurance? All these who, what, where is an effort to standardize what we do to make it easier for not just me, but everyone that goes to our clinic to, to have this uh, success. And, and I think that's led to uh, I, th I, th I think that's led to a lot of wins, because I think what I'm seeing on the adult side is that more and more patients understand what's happening. They know the process. It's now not becoming a subjective decision that you should go to, to the adult clinic now. Um, it, it's because they've met the criteria to move through that. And, and so, I, yeah, I could definitely say that I've had several patients, young and old, who have, have expressed um, when they moved to the adult side that it hasn't been traumatic. And to me, that's a win. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I, I've, I've heard many stories where the, the patients and families are crying because they're moving to the adult side. And, and, I, and then this just actually happened last Wednesday. So we had our, our transition clinic. Uh, one of the standardized things we've done is we have a graduation ceremony on their last visit. So we come in with a diploma, hmm. we throw streamers on them, we ring hmm. a bell, um, we clap, you know, we, we, we have a little speech. And so now the crying is like a happiness crying. It's not a traumatic crying. It's a, oh my gosh, I've, I've, I've not only graduated from high school, but I've graduated from pediatrics. And that accomplishment uh, is, is absolutely a win for me. So I, I think that that's something that uh, I'm pretty proud of. That's really beautiful. Great to create the space where 
big emotion can still come forward, but now it has a different container that it can come forward in. It's a, it's a celebratory, it's a positive, it's a communal container. So there's no need for feelings of maybe shame, which can come up if it's, you know, if it's not channeled in this kind of way. So I, I think that's a great idea. I'm curious. It's a little surprising to hear how non-standardized the transitional process can be writ large. Are other centers doing similar to you? Have, have other places standardized their practices? I, I'm very curious about that. Well, I, I would say that um, the major academic centers on pediatric side are, are doing a are doing a pretty good job, uh, but the, the the issue is is that there are a lot of centers that are not major academic centers, and that there are a lot of uh, children's hospitals that uh, don't that have a great program and are doing a lot of what they should be, but they haven't necessarily standardized it. Um, and and so you know one one common question that often comes up is you know like what you know what got me into transition and 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 so I'll go ahead and just you know kind of dive into that and and it, I remember exactly the moment I wanted to do transition and kind of get into standardizing the standardizing the approach figure out what's the best way to get patients from peds to adults and it's when I was a third year fellow I had already kind of expressed some interest in transition. But one of the patients I saw in clinic was 21. Everyone loved him. He was in pediatrics. Everyone loved him. He was a he was a funny, funny guy. And everyone said he's going to stay in pediatrics forever. I mean, we, we just love him. Why you know why do we need to send him to adults? And I thought, okay, well, I'm a third year fellow. I can't make up the rules. That, that sounds interesting. That that that's great. And you know, he, he's a good he's a good patient. So then the very next patient I had was a 16 year old. And he was doing everything wrong, right? I mean, he's experimenting with drugs and, 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 and smoking and, you know, not wanting to come to clinic and take his medications. And, and the, the response was, yeah, he's ready to go to the adults. We, we think he should probably go soon. Mm-hmm. And, and I just thought, why, why is this subjective? You know, why, why are we making this difference uh, in, in when and how a patient should move from pediatrics to adults? And so... You know, I, I just thought the standardization should happen, and and it is the consensus. I mean, if you look at guidelines from Got Transition, from uh, other consensus panels, it is that we need to try and do a better job of doing this in a standardized way. So, so you know, going back to your question, I think major academic centers are doing a good job, but I think there are there's still a long way to go. I think we still are all striving to try and continue to improve the process. It's hmm. an interesting story. Uh, another area of focus for you when it comes to research is on novel therapeutic options for people with sickle cell disease. Does the current treatment and investigational treatment landscape influence how you think about transitions of care? In other words, in thinking about transitions, what's true and important now that wasn't true or wasn't relevant or important, say, even five, ten years ago? Yeah, I think there's probably two things that come to, to mind here. Uh, the, the first is that uh, I, I'm just excited that there are options that we now have. You know, we really came in uh, to patients' rooms and had one conversation about one medication. It was hydroxyurea. That's all we had 10 years ago. And in hydroxyurea was good, but but it's not enough. And, and inevitably, patients would, would have uh, complications. And so to a certain extent, Patients and, and, and um, the discussion about treatment was it was very monotonous. I mean, it was very like, okay, there's hydroxyurea. I know you're on it. This is what we're trying to do, uh, but that's all we got. And and I'm excited that we finally have research um, effort money being put behind sickle cell because now I come into a transition room and I say, look, 
we have four drugs that we can talk about. We have all these different options. We have more coming down the pipeline. I, I love talking about what's coming because I always want to let them know about, you know, what's all what's on the table as to all the things that are being researched. And so I think that goes back to having patients empower themselves to know what is out there, what they could potentially be treated with, have an understanding about their disease. And, and so I think that's the first aspect. And so when that, with all these new agents, it gives me more to talk about. And when there's more to talk about, uh, it gives me more than just how's your pain? How many hospitalizations have you had? How you, I mean, I always, and, the, and this is just my, my, my bias, but I always spend 10 to 15 minutes at the beginning of the conversation that has nothing to do with sickle cell. I try to talk about school, the family, work, anything else I can. I try to focus the beginning. And this is another opportunity. Okay, the next transition is, well, do you know that there's all these new things now available? So that I think that's, that, that's a great point. The second thing that I think is important to understand with these new agents, hydroxyurea was good because it, now that we use it early in life, you know, nine months and older, we, we have pushed the complications and issues down the road. And so what we have seen is that kids do great early on. And around the teenage years, they start to have some, what, what I call speed bumps. They have start to have a couple of issues here and there. Now with these new agents, patients are, I, I, I'm hopeful, gonna have a little bit more of a delay. Again, I'm, I think we're gonna push things down the road a little bit further. So I think patients are gonna do well. I, I actually think with more and more options and with the agents that we have, that younger patients will have more opportunities to be successful in school and, and, and getting to the adult world. And so now with transition and our, our preparing them, I think we'll have a better chance. My hope is that we'll have a better chance for them to be successful in moving to the adult world. And then again, we'll have more agents than on the adult side to continue the conversation about what to do next. So I think those are two aspects of these new agents uh, that, that are being very helpful in, in transition. Today's episode of Cheat Codes is brought to you by Novartis, manufacturers of Adacvio and the Adacvio Warrior Way program. Hey, warriors fighting sickle cell disease, you know how unpredictable and uncomfortable sickle cell pain crises can be. That's why it's so important to explore your options. One of those options is Adacvio. What exactly is Adacvio? Adacvio is a treatment for people 16 years or older with sickle cell disease that could reduce how often certain pain crises happen. It is not known if Adacvio is safe and effective in children under 16 years of age. And the Adacvio Warrior Way program can provide you with support, including tips, tools, and resources to help you understand Adacvio. Reducing the frequency of pain crises may be possible with Adacvio. Talk to your doctor to see if treatment with Adacvio is right for you and visit adacvio.com to learn more. That's A-D-A-K-V-E-O.com. Visit adacvio.com today. Important safety information. What is Adacvio? Adacvio is a prescription medicine used in people 16 years of age and older who have sickle cell disease to help reduce how often painful crises happen. It is not known if Adacvio is safe and effective in children under 16 years of age. What should I tell my doctor or healthcare provider before taking Adacvio? Before receiving Adacvio, tell your healthcare provider about all of your medical conditions, including if you are pregnant or plan to become pregnant, Adacvio may harm your unborn baby, are breastfeeding or plan to breastfeed, it is not known if Adacvio passes into breast milk. You and your healthcare provider should decide the best way to feed your baby during treatment with Adacvio. Tell your healthcare provider about all of the medicines you take, including prescription and over-the-counter medicines, vitamins, and herbal supplements. How will I receive Adacvio? 
your healthcare provider will give you Adacvio as an infusion into your vein through an intravenous or IV line over 30 minutes. You will receive your first infusion and then a second infusion two weeks later. After that, you will receive an infusion every four weeks. Your healthcare provider may also prescribe other treatments for you to take during treatment with Adacvio. Do not stop receiving Adacvio unless your healthcare provider tells you to. If you miss an appointment for an infusion, call your healthcare provider as soon as possible to reschedule. What are some of the possible side effects of Adacvio? Adacvio may cause serious side effects, including infusion-related reactions. Infusion-related reactions may happen during or within 24 hours of receiving an infusion of Adacvio. Your healthcare provider may slow down, temporarily stop, or completely stop your infusion with Adacvio if you are having an infusion-related reaction. You may continue to receive Adacvio at a slower infusion rate, and your healthcare provider may give you certain medicines before your infusion to lower your risk of getting an infusion-related reaction. Your healthcare provider should monitor you for signs and symptoms of infusion-related reactions and treat your symptoms as needed. Tell your healthcare provider right away if you get any of the following signs and symptoms of an infusion-related reaction. Pain in various locations, headache, fever, chills or shivering, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, tiredness, dizziness, sweating, hives, itching, shortness of breath, or wheezing. Adacvio may interfere with a blood test. Tell your healthcare provider if you are receiving Adacvio before having any blood test. Adacvio may interfere with a laboratory test to measure your platelet counts. The most common side effects of Adacvio include nausea, stomach area or abdominal pain or tenderness, joint pain, back pain, fever. These are not all of the possible side effects of Adacvio. For more information, ask your healthcare provider or pharmacist. Call your doctor for medical advice about side effects. You are encouraged to report negative side effects of prescription drugs to the Food and Drug Administration. Visit fda.gov medwatch or call 1-800-FDA-1088. General information about the safe and effective use of Adacvio. Medicines are sometimes prescribed for purposes other than those listed in a patient information leaflet. You can ask your healthcare provider or pharmacist for more information about Adacvio. At the risk of opening a Pandora's box for an entire other interview, I'm curious if uh, an adult patient was to come into your adult clinic for the first time today, hasn't been in a clinic for a number of years, isn't aware of updates on the science or options, you have a minute when they first arrive to kind of give them the, the overview, hit the priority that you that you see. What's that first minute of conversation like with this patient? You're right, I mean, th this does open up because I, I, I love kind of going into these conversations of letting patients know where we are uh, with sickle cell. You know, of course, I, I'm gonna assess, you know, what, what they know. I really think a big aspect of transition as well as just caring for patients with sickle cell is asking questions. So I ask tons of questions. What do you know about your sickle cell? What do you know about the medications that are available? What do you know about the complications? What do you know with where you want to go? So I'm always asking questions get it, to get an assessment, almost to the point that sometimes, and I mean, my patients know me now, but but almost to the point that the patient will be kind of wonder, do I know anything? You know, do, did I read their chart? And, and my, my patients know that that's what I do. And that's my style. I'm always quizzing them to a certain extent. But for a new patient, I do that as well. I'm really just trying to get an assessment of what they know. And, and I think that's important because then you're able to give them the information for the gaps in knowledge that, that they don't that they have. And, and so I think that's really important to always continue to reassess. And I see this with, with young adults all the time. You can tell them once, you can tell them twice, you may have to tell them three or four times before it, it finally clicks 
And so another thing that I, I think I really try to pride myself on is to tell stories and tell things in a digestible way. You know, if you're talking about sickle cell polymerization, it's going to go right over their head. It, it's going to go over the head of even many students that you talk to, medical students. But if you say, instead of polymerization, you talk about hemoglobin as something that holds oxygen and carries it, but then once it you know, delivers the oxygen, it turns into a magnet, right? It's positive and negative charges. And what do magnets in a bag do? They all stack on themselves, positive, negative, positive, negative. So you have to tell these stories in a way that they can understand it and then say, oh yeah, I remember you telling me about the magnets in the bag. I get what polymerization is. And that's a very complicated topic. So I think that that uh, for sure is something that I try, try to do with, with um, each visit. It'd be at 30 seconds, 60 seconds or, or longer. It's funny, sometimes I think uh, the, the royal we, the societal we, think about using stories and anecdotes like that for children or in talking to pediatric patients. But as an adult, I always want things in that kind of a idea. Tell me the magnet bag story again. I can't understand polyrhythmic. But I tell me about the magnets. I, I always want. I think we sometimes overlook the need to reach adults with those kinds of tactics because some, some of this is just hard to digest. It's just too, it's too dense. And, and if there's any kind of fear or trauma or anxiety associated with the disease, that's only going to make it more challenging for the average person to absorb scientific information about what's actually going on. I love coming up with new things. And so I'm always looking for what's another cool way of telling this story. You know, if it, if it, if it's a red blood cell, I can use a jelly donut analogy. If, I, if it's a, you know, if it's gene therapy, I can talk about envelopes and UPS packages being delivered, <laughs> right. all kinds of stuff that we, that, you know, I've heard and, and, and things that I try to make up because it, you're right. I think no matter what, how old you are, it's really just about understanding what's happening and, and, and if that, that means we need to tell a story or, or make it digestible, then that's what we need to do. Another area of research focus for you is on the use of mobile technology to advance patient care for sickle cell disease, which I am very interested in. And that's a big topic in and of itself. That's another basket just waiting to be opened. But specifically in thinking about transition, what are you learning from your research into mobile technology that impacts how you think about the transition process? My other uh, love uh, in, in life is besides transition is is mobile apps and technology. I, I, I'm not necessarily a tech geek, but I have so many ideas that I can get the tech geeks to work on. And and so one of those, and, and this started probably eight years ago now, uh, was starting to make apps for for patients. And and the effort was to start getting information from patients that that are you know um, live so it's so patients can provide their symptoms how they're feeling they can send the information to the providers they can see how they're doing over time with a little dashboard uh, with their pain scores for example and and also just record how how, how their medications are doing so i've i've used uh, apps in lots of different ways in transition there have been a couple things that i've done the, the one of which i think again goes to what I, what I mentioned earlier is, is really providing the resources and education. And so, you know, again, one of the studies that, that I mentioned with Dr. Asunquo, you know, there, there's an app that, that provides education about transition. It has actually a little PowerPoint about uh, the who, what, where, and why, and, and trying to get patients to understand these are the different aspects of sickle cell we want you to know. But it also has an ability to chat 
with an educator, a transition educator. Again, not in a medical way, but just to say, hey, how are things going? Did you know you had an appointment? Uh, have you, you know, been able to, to uh, get all your schoolwork done? Have you had any you know, issues? Just in a, in a way to have that connection. Again, going back to this concept that connection is really key. So I think apps have been been great. I mean, I, I can I've been using apps for all kinds of things, and and I'll definitely put a plug here that I really do think that apps and wearables and, and wearable devices are going to be a huge part of where we go. And I think uh, in the mindset that transition age patients want us to be on their level, right? Now, when I call a patient to say, you missed an appointment, they don't, they don't answer. <laughs> They're not going to answer. <laughs> I can leave a message. They're not going to call me back. But if I text, and probably more importantly, if I text and put an emoji in there, <laughs> they're going to text me back. And, and I think we have to get to that point where we have to realize that in this day and age, we, we, patients are, are communicating in a different way. And so if texting is one way to do that, if having a chat bot to allow them to communicate and work through an algorithm is the way to do that, then I think we need to, we need to change uh, some of the modalities of providing that, that information to them. So that, that's, that's an exciting part of, of, of the research that I'm doing. Yeah, we have to go to their sandbox, right? We can't ask them to come play in our sandbox. We got to go to their sandbox if we want to reach them. Just a couple questions with the time that we have left. So as you know, and listeners, as you very well may know, September is National Sickle Cell Awareness Month. So my question for you, Dr. Shaw, is that if you met a stranger on the street and had 30 seconds to tell them about sickle cell disease for National Sickle Cell Awareness Month, I don't know what the circumstances are that you're just bumping into this person and because it's September, you have to tell them about this, but those are the circumstances circumstances, what would you say? I would start by saying that most people would be unaware of the fact that we have a population of patients uh, that's been underserved, underappreciated, and uh, is finally, I think, getting a time where things are changing and more people should understand that they need to be part of this of this wave of improving the care for sickle cell. And, and part of that uh, ability is to, to learn what sickle cell means to a patient and family and, and what sickle cell means to a community. And then how can we help that process? I mean, again, with a, a patient population that historically uh, has not had many options as we, as we kind of brought up, we now have four options. There's more to come. We have exciting things happening. We have money being put into this. And, and I, I say this to, to not only strangers, but, but to anyone that'll listen to me, that you know, if there is a time to put your put your time, you know, effort into uh, learning about a patient population and and providing some extra care, uh, it would be for sickle cell because I, I just see this this huge wave of good things happening, and and I think the only way to do that is to continue the the uh, accelerated process of what we're doing already. I, mean, we, we, I see that it, this last five years has been tremendous. And I, and I, and I think that it's going to continue as long as people on the street, strangers, uh, learners, anyone that, that understands that this is, this is a big deal is going gonna, is gonna to be um, interested in joining the, the effort. Yeah, I've so appreciated this conversation. There's a few things that my brain is kind of starting to summarize as we wrap up here. But thinking about transition, some, something that I've learned from this conversation, three C's seem to come to mind as important. Common, having that common face or that continuity of, of person in the care. Connection, 
having an actual connection, a meaningful connection with that provider is going to help me as a patient stay in communication, open up, respond back to the text even quicker. Uh, and then creativity, hearing the story about how we turn the, we, we create a graduation ceremony and it, it's a chance to accomplish and celebrate the accomplishment of graduating through pediatric care and gives a place for the emotions that may came up to be channeled that's that's communal another c word but those are some of the things that are coming through to me as being really important and i'm, I'm grateful for this conversation is there anything we haven't touched on that before we wrap you would like to tell the cheat codes audience about i would say that anyone who's listening uh and has uh any experience or care uh, of patients with sickle cell disease I would just continue to advocate to spread the knowledge. I think that that's why I'm actually so thankful that that you're giving me this platform to to share some of my uh, information about transition and, and and everything else. It's because I think every time we do something like this, every time we can reach out and spread this information, uh, you you touch another person who can then do that again. And so then you're you're exponentially uh, spreading the knowledge and, and not just being one person in an isolated space. So I, I really do appreciate you being able to do this. I've listened to your podcast over over uh, the, the many months and I've just been fascinated to, to hear uh, the great, uh, the great uh, conversations you've had. So I would say keep it up and, and I'd love for the audience to keep, uh, keep the education as well. Well, I'll say on behalf of Dr. Zadie and Callahan, thank you. It's, it's all their work and, and their focus and their dedication. And on this side at Bloodstream Media, we're just proud to support them. Thank you again for coming on this morning, Dr. Shah. Very much appreciate it and hope to have you back on Cheat Codes in the future. Much appreciated. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. You know, along the way, I have found um, many people in the sickle cell space that I have looked up to um, as mentors, as people who I want to model myself after, who have attributes that... Uh, really allow them to stand out. And, and you know, after that interview with Dr. Nurmisha, I feel proud that, that I'm able to say that, that, that he has been a mentor to me in many things. And um, I'm, just, I'm just so happy that there's individuals like him that are putting real thought into taking care of sickle cell patients uh, in the United States. You can tell from that interview how committed he is to sickle cell, how much thought he puts into it, all of the, you know, programs he, he's putting in place to try to make things better. Um, but I, I think, you know, he's also a great guy, a friend and, uh, you know, truly a mentor and a, a generous guy. You know, I think in academics, a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of great people in academics, but, you know, a lot of times people are staking out their territory and they're competitive and Dr. Shaw is a, you know, really uh, uniquely friendly, supportive, you know, really all about getting good stuff done and not about credit or about, uh, you know, I, I think you wouldn't want to let him be on cheat codes and not, not let everybody know what a great guy he is. It's true. It's true. Well, there you have it, Warriors. Just know that there's doctors like Dr. Nermi Shaw out there trying to fight the good fight with you. With that being said, you guys know, keep living well with sickle cell and share this podcast with somebody who you think could benefit from hearing about sickle cell disease transition and and just know that there are doctors like Dr. Namisha out there. Thanks to Patrick James Lynch too. He's been a force behind cheat codes. Um, so I'm, I'm glad got a chance to hear him in person, but also looking forward to getting back into doing the interviews ourselves soon, Dr. Z. Same, same, same. With that being said, follow me at Dr. Z Sickle Cell. And me at Imagineer. We'll catch you at the next episode. Peace.